Well, if you've been with us, you know we're going through the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, it's been an incredible study so far. And this morning, we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 24. So if you would please stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 20 this morning. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, and the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went out his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but may my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good, for you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. This is the word of the Lord. Be Please be seated. Have you ever felt like you were being attacked by an enemy? Have you ever felt backed into a corner? Felt like there was opposition all around? Have you ever felt like people were against you. There is a phenomenon known in the animal kingdom as fight or flight response. When an animal senses that there is a predator looming, 
Adrenaline rushes through their bodies. Their heart begins to race. Their breathing becomes increased and their muscles tense up all to prepare them either to run away or to stay and fight. If you have ever felt the hostility of an enemy, you know that fight or flight is not just something for animals in the plains of the Serengeti, but we feel it too as people. You see, the reality is most of us do not face physical threats each and every day, but we do face enemies, cultural enemies, political enemies, ideological enemies, relational enemies, yes, even spiritual enemies. And the question for us this morning is this, how will we respond? How do we respond in a hostile world? Will we run or will we fight? In our passage this morning, David finds himself surrounded by an enemy. He is surrounded by Saul and his army and they want to kill him and he knows it. And yet when he has the opportunity to take Saul's life, he lets him live. He does not run away and he does not fight. Instead, he confronts his enemy with mercy. Why? This morning, we're gonna try to answer that question. Why would David, when he had the chance, not take Saul's life? Why would he show him mercy? And we're gonna look at this in three ways. The first way is this. David entrusted himself to the will of God. Second, David humbled himself before his enemy. And third, the last thing that we will look at is that David overcame evil with good. In all these ways, what I want you to see this morning is this, that David showed mercy to his enemy. And that is very good news for you and me who are just like him. We are enemies too. So the first thing I want to look at is this. David entrusted himself to the will of God. I want you to look at verse one. We're told that Saul had just returned from battle. He was battling against the Philistines and he heard that David was camped out in the wilderness of En Gedi. And so Saul then went back out to battle. He chose 3,000 men to go after David and his 600 men. Now, there's something I think all of us have to recognize before we get any further. In Saul's mind, David was a primary enemy. He had just come back from battle, and now he's going back out to battle, not to fight against the Philistines, but to fight against David. In his mind, David is just as bad. Think about the resources and manpower that Saul is dedicating to hunting David down. 3,000 of his best soldiers to hunt down one man and 600 of his men. How did we get to this point? How did David become such an enemy in the eyes of Saul? Well, if you're just now joining us, I just want to recap very briefly what has happened that has led to this kind of conflict. God called Samuel to anoint Saul as the first king of Israel. But Saul rejected the authority of God and set out to build his own kingdom rather than God's kingdom. And so God rejected Saul 
And he told Saul that he was going to anoint a new king, a king who would be a man after his own heart. And then Samuel anointed David to be the next king. What happened next, Saul became so consumed with hatred and control that he was filled with jealousy for David. And he began to hunt him down. And for four or five chapters, story after story of Saul hunting David and David narrowly escaping. All of that has led to this moment. 1 Samuel 24. David finds himself surrounded by Saul and his army. And this is what we read in verse 3. It says that Saul came to the sheepfolds by the way, and there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Okay, now we have a choice. Either we can all just laugh now and get it out of the way, or we can be mature, okay? Saul went in to relieve himself. Yes, it means that he went to the bathroom. Here's why that's incredibly important. The first reason is this. It's verses like this that I think prove that the Bible is true. Because if it was made up, why would you put a detail in there like that? (laughs) This is not just a fable or a legend. The story of Saul and David is a true story. It actually happened. But the second reason why this detail is important is this. For Saul to go into the cave, to go to the bathroom, means that he would have gone in alone. You see, his bodyguards would have left him some privacy. Yes, they would have posted up at the mouth of the cave, the entrance of the cave. They would have made sure that nobody came in after him, but they would have never expected that there would have been danger inside of the cave. So Saul was alone and he was vulnerable. And this is what happens next. Verse three continues. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. Now it's getting good. Of all the places where David was hiding, Saul and his army going to hunt him down, they happened to be encamped in the innermost parts of the very cave that Saul has gone in by himself. And he is completely vulnerable to attack. And so in verse four, David's men come to him and say, David, now's your chance. This is the moment we've been waiting for. Defend yourself, not only defend yourself, but take the throne. Kill your enemy. This is the moment that God has led you to. Notice what they say. Here is the day of which the Lord said to you. Only problem with this is there is no record of God ever saying this to David. And let this be a warning to us. However well-meaning our friends might be, especially when they give us advice that is kind of clothed in religious sounding language, we need to be careful because however well-meaning David's men were, not only were they misleading him, but they were committing blasphemy. But David knew better. He does not kill Saul. He does not take his life. Verse four, then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of his robe. But listen to what David does next. Verse five, afterward, David's heart struck him. David snuck up on Saul. He doesn't kill him. 
He doesn't take his life. He just cuts off a corner of his robe. And yet David's response is to be filled with grief, to mourn, to be convicted over what he has done. Why? Why would David feel bad about showing such restraint? Because in those days, the corner of somebody's robe meant something. It was symbolic, especially the corner or the hem of a king's robe. And so for David to cut off the corner of Saul's robe meant that he might as well be cutting off the kingdom and keeping it to himself. And in this moment, after he's done this thing, David is struck to the heart. He is convicted. Why? Because he recognizes that the kingdom of Israel is not his to take. It's his to receive. You see, unlike Saul, David entrusted himself to the will of God. He refused to fight against it. He refused to take matters into his own hands. He refused to build up his own kingdom and his own agenda. He was committed to building the kingdom of God, which meant he had to trust him with everything, including his life. David entrusted himself to the will of God. Our call to worship this morning was taken from Psalm 57. You can turn there if you want in your bulletin, or you can just listen. Now, like many of the Psalms in the Bible, Psalm 57 begins with a title, an explanation. It says this, to the choir master, a victim of David, when he fled from Saul in the cave. In other words, if you ever wanted to read somebody's journal, now's your chance. This is Saul's prayer journal while he's in the cave, hiding from Saul in this very moment. And I want you to hear his words. Verse four, my soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man whose teeth are like spears and arrows, whose tongues are like sharp swords. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. Do you hear it? Do you hear David's anguish? his fear. He knows he is surrounded by the enemy. He knows that his enemy wants to take his life. He feels as though his soul is being surrounded by a predator like lions. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt as if you were surrounded by an enemy? That everyone or everything around you was against you? Have you ever felt as if people's words about you were like sharp swords poking and prodding your soul? Who or what is your greatest enemy? Now, I know right now you're probably thinking, I don't have an enemy. I try to get along with everybody, right? Well, I get that. We are called to be peacemakers. But the truth is, you and I face opposition every single day that we cannot control. And so our enemies might look a little bit differently than they do for David. Our enemies might be cultural, where we find ourselves as the people of God on the wrong side of morality. 
where moral morality and what it means to do right and justice is being completely redefined in our culture, we find ourselves hated and accused of bigotry. Sometimes our enemies are political. And maybe you feel this more today than you ever have before. A political discourse that we are finding ourselves in where rather than having civil debate, we are personally attacking one another. Sometimes our enemies are relational. But the enemies that we face actually live in our own houses. Husband against wife. Son against father. Mother against daughter. Sometimes, for some of you, your greatest enemy is yourself. And you hold yourself to such a high standard, constantly beating yourself up, refusing to hear God's love for you, constantly warring against yourself. If you find yourself surrounded by an enemy this morning, I want you to hear what David wrote next in Psalm 57. This is what he wrote in verse 7. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. How could David's heart be steadfast when he was surrounded by such opposition and hostility? Because he entrusted himself to a steadfast God. My friends, if you faced opposition, if you are surrounded by an enemy, can I tell you something? You are in good company. Because our Lord Jesus Christ was surrounded by an enemy. He lived among his enemies. And he even submitted himself to the will of God in the midst of his enemies, even to the point of death on a cross. And so if you find yourself surrounded by enemies, you are exactly where God wants you to be. And you need to know this. He is steadfast. He cannot be shaken and he cannot be conquered. And one day he will be victorious. And every evil that we face and every enemy that surrounds us will be conquered forever. We must entrust ourselves to his will and his purpose because it is steadfast. Second, David humbled himself before his enemy. I want you to look at verse eight. We're told that Saul leaves the cave. He has no idea what's just happened to him. No idea that the corner of his robe has been cut off. And David leaves the cave after him. And he calls out, my Lord and my King. And when Saul looked behind him, it says, David bowed down his face to the earth and paid homage. I want you to imagine this scene. Saul, completely unaware that David is even around him, ready to rally his troops to go find him. And all of a sudden, he hears his voice coming out of the cave after him. And when he turns around, he sees David and David doesn't gloat. He doesn't mock him. He doesn't hold a sword in his fist, ready to fight. No, he says, my Lord and my King. And he bows down before him. This is an incredible display of humility. Rather than fight his enemy, 
David is bowing before his enemy in humility. And then this is what he says, verse 9. He says, why do you listen to the words of the men who say, behold, David seeks your harm. And in verse 11, he says, see my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. David humbles himself. He bows before his enemy. He holds up the corner of the robe in his hands. And then you notice what he said the beginning of verse 11, my father. In other words, you call me enemy, I call you father. His message is as simple as it is poignant. Saul, though you want to kill me, I refuse to kill you. Saul, though you see me as your enemy, I refuse to see you as mine. David treats his enemy with mercy because he has humbled himself. To call him father is a term of reconciliation. It's a relational word. It's a word that means I love you. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that we're not only to love our neighbors, But as Christians, we are called to love our enemies. And I think if we're going to be honest this morning, there is not a more difficult command in all of Scripture than to love our enemies. Why? Because we live in a world of outrage where it is so easy to be angry and upset at the world around us. Tim Kreider is an essayist and political cartoonist. He wrote this back in 2009. He said, a couple years ago, I learned something kind of embarrassing. Anger feels good. Once I realized that I enjoyed anger, I noticed how much time I spent experiencing it. Listen to this. He says, if you're anything like me, you spend about 87% of your mental life winning imaginary arguments that are never going to take place. And you chuckle because you know that's true of you. It's true of me too what is he saying? He's saying that anger is like a drug. Now we know it's bad for us. There's sometimes we just kind of want to stew, don't we? We just kind of want to sit in our anger. Why? Because deep down, our anger is tied to pride. It makes us feel righteous. We spend all that time trying to win mental imaginary arguments because we want to be right. Kreider goes on. He says, one reason we rush so quickly to vulgar satisfactions of judgment and love to revel in our righteous outrage is because it spares us the impotent pain of empathy and the harder, messier work of understanding. Loving our enemies is hard because it requires that we give up our self-righteousness. It asks of us to not just demand to be right all the time. And more than anything else, it asks that we recognize that apart from the grace of God, we are just like our enemies and that we are no different. And so if your outrage and the anger that you feel makes you withhold God's mercy from your enemies while you conveniently withhold God's judgment from yourself, 
then you are missing the point of God's grace. I want you to hear these words of David to Saul. He says, may the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. In other words, David recognized that vengeance is not his. It belongs to the Lord. And he recognizes that apart from the grace of God, he is just like Saul. And you know what? Apart from the grace of God, we are just like Saul too. So the third and final thing I want to look at this morning, David overcame evil with good. As soon as David finishes speaking, Saul then speaks. He says, is this your voice, my son David, verse 16? And then we're told that he lifts up his voice and he weeps. Saul has been confronted by David's act of mercy and it has cut him to the core. And all he can do is to say, my son, and to weep. Now notice what he's saying. David called him my father. And now Saul's responding, my son. And now he is weeping. He has been cut open by this act of grace and kindness. He doesn't even know what to do with it. All he can say is, I was paying you with evil. But David, you have repaid me with good. How did David overcome evil with good? He let his enemy live. Verse 18. Saul says, you have declared this day how you dealt with me and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will you let him go away safe? Saul recognizes that David has become the king that he could never be. David is the merciful king, the one who has shown Saul mercy. And this mercy has broken Saul to the point where you finally seize it. Surely, David, you will be king. Now, I could stop the sermon here, and it would be a great hero story. And we would see in David this powerful challenge of what it looks like for us as God's people today to love our enemies, to trust the Lord with all that we face, and to recognize that we need to be called to humility rather than outrage, and to be merciful rather than to be prone to vengeance. But if there's anything that 1 Samuel has taught us, is that if we're honest, we are not like David, and we are a lot more like Saul. When we think of enemies and victims, so often we put ourselves in the position of the victim rather than the enemy. But what I want to end with is this. What if your greatest enemy is not the world around you, not the people in your life, not the opposition that you face. But what if deep down, if you were going to be honest, your greatest enemy was God himself? That because you and I try to build our own kingdom every single day, and we spend a lifetime crowning ourselves as kings and queens over our own worlds, that makes us enemies of God. When you and I seek to build our own kingdom rather than his, that is called treason. And the penalty of treason is death. But you see, there's a greater story here. A story that this story points to. A story of another king named Jesus Christ who didn't just let his enemy live, but he died for his enemy. Jesus Christ, the king of kings who laid down his life for you and for me, 
This is why Paul says, Romans 5, 10, while we were enemies, Christ died for us. It's why Jesus commands us to love our enemies. Why? Because he loved us. Because when we were his enemy, he died for us. And so as, you're, as we end, this is what I want you to see. That Jesus Christ entrusted himself to the will of God. And there in the Garden of Gethsemane, while he was sweating drops of blood, he prayed, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus Christ humbled himself before his enemy. That's you and that's me. And he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And finally, Jesus Christ overcame our evil with good. And on the third day, he rose again to conquer every evil and to destroy every enemy, even the greatest enemy that you and I face, sin and death. And now he has given us victory. And so we can entrust ourselves to him. And so here is my question for you. If you have not trusted in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for your salvation, that means you are still his enemy and you are left in your sin. Don't run from him. And don't you dare try to fight him. But receive his mercy. He laid his life down for you. If you do know that wonderful truth, the good news of the gospel, then as we sing now, respond. Trust him and be courageous because if he has conquered sin and death, know that he has conquered every enemy on our behalf. Let me pray. Father, as we sing now, we pray that you would stir our hearts, move our affections. We pray that we would respond. May we see that as we crowned you king, we are humbling ourselves and declaring that your kingdom is better and that your will should be done. We pray that you would do this in our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing together.